0: This week on the show, we are having an article about causing ZFS corruption for fun and profit, a NetBSD assembly programming tutorial, the IKEA lack rack for servers, a new OmniOS Community Edition LTS has been published. We have an LS uh, LSBLK-style listing for free BSD, a Project Trident 19.10 update, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now episode 319, Lack Rack, Jack, recorded for the 9th of October 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling.
1: And I'm Alan Jude.
0: And as you might expect, this is a new episode of BSD Now, and we should jump right into our headlines this week, which is causing ZFS corruption for fun and profit.
1: Right. Uh, this is a post by uh, Brian Elric from Dato, which is uh, one of the companies that offers a backup service based on ZFS. Uh, And they say, Dato backs up data, and a lot of it. Uh, As of the time of this writing, Dato has over 500 petabytes of data stored on ZFS. This count includes both backup appliances we have sent to customers, as well as cloud storage servers that we used for secondary or tertiary backups of those appliances. At this scale, drive swaps are a daily occurrence, and data corruption is inevitable. How we handle this corruption when it happens, determines whether we truly lose data or successfully restore from secondary backups. In this post, we'll be showing uh, you some of how Datto has intentionally caused corruption on our testing environments to ensure we're building software that can properly handle these scenarios. Uh, Big disclaimer, you should absolutely not attempt these instructions on any system containing any data that you would like to keep. I provide no guarantee that the commands within this uh, Post will not completely destroy your Z pool uh, and your life yeah better not uh so it has some background on what is zfs but we don't really need to do that for this mm-hmm. audience do we no
0: no not anymore
1: um so they talk a little bit about what the corruption might actually look like so it says zfs has mechanisms referred to as scrub uh, or scrubbing to detect and repair silent data corruption um zfs also gracefully handles drive failures and drive swaps in this case, by corruption, we mean permanent data loss, where all of ZfS's internal backup replicas of the data are lost or destroyed. Uh, in a real life scenario, this would be triggered uh, or would be a trigger to recover uh, destroyed data off an off-site replica or a backup. Uh, in practice, these scenarios are rare since ZFS is designed around preventing permanent corruption, uh, but therein lies the problem since these corruption events are so rare it's hard to write code to handle these scenarios unless of course you can cause the corruption yourself so you know uh in zfs each vdev is is responsible for maintaining its integrity meaning that we normally spread copies around so that losing uh any number of drives uh within the tolerance is allowed So if you have a RAID Z3, even if you lose two or three drives at once, it's okay as long as you can replace them before the fourth drive fails. Or, you know, that's why mirrors in ZFS are allowed to be as arbitrarily deep as you need. You know, I have a couple machines that are actually four deep mirrors. So that means every block is written to four different drives. Uh, So that that system will just keep going for a long time, even if some of the drives fail. Uh, So looking at their setup... uh, for this example, we'll be using a realistic example, uh, a Zpool with a single mirror VDEV uh, with two backing physical disks. So they have a mirror of two hard drives. Uh, so the cause of this corruption, uh, since this is a mirror setup, a naive solution to cause corruption would be to randomly DD the same sector on both of these two physical disks. This works, but it's equally likely to have just overwritten random unused space uh, rather than to actually have hit some data. Uh, What we really want is to corrupt a specific snapshot, or even more specifically, a certain file in that snapshot, to simulate a more realistic minor corruption event. Uh, Luckily, we have a tool called ZDB, the ZFS debugger, uh, which lets us view some low-level information about datasets and files. So after they created a dataset called CorruptMe and wrote some test data to it, and then took a snapshot of it, they can then use the ZDB... Uh, dash ddd so that's three levels of verbosity on data set on that snapshot and they can see some information about it Mm -hmm. there it Um, is and then when they dig into it a little bit more uh, turning the verbosity up to five you can actually see the byte ranges that are used on the disk Uh, or using those uh, the dva or data virtual address this is Uh, where on the disk the data actually lives if you use those addresses and feed them into zdb with the capital r flag it can actually output what's there and in this case you can see it's the lorem ipsum stuff they wrote to that file Uh, and you can specify how much you want to read and so on Uh, so then they can use dd to skip to that specific sector uh and write different data to it so uh Looking at what they're doing, they're trying to read from the SDB1, uh, which is a physical mirror, uh, in 512-byte blocks, and skipping ahead to a certain offset. So why doesn't it work? Uh, It turns out that it's a little bit different than that because uh, the offsets used in ZFS are um, relative to the start of the ZFS data area, not the start of the partition. Uh, So when they adjust the offset to account for that 4-megabyte ZFS so header at the beginning of the partition, then with raw DD, they can figure out what sector number it is and see the data that they're trying to read. So now they see their lorem ipsum, and so they can write from dev u random over top of that data. So now when they run a scrub, they'll get a checksum error on those blocks, and it'll be on both of the drives in the mirror, and so the mirror will uh, be like, sorry, I don't have any copies of that block that are good. Uh, and now you have permanent error on that file and you can see in that snapshot. Uh, so when you run zpool status, you'll see uh, permanent data error and it says that snapshot, this file is broken. You'll have to restore it from a backup. Uh, so congratulations, you've successfully destroyed your data. <laughs> <laughs> so at the 500 petabyte scale, it's not a matter of if data corruption will happen, but when. Intentionally causing corruption is one of the strategies we use to ensure we're building software that can handle these rare but inevitable cases. To others that are using ZFS, I'm curious to hear if you solve this problem in a different way. We uh, did quite a bit of experimentation with the Zinject command before going with the more brute force method described here. So I'd be especially interested if you've had any luck simulating corruption using the z-inject thing, which allows allow you to basically inject failures uh, so you can simulate them. Yep. Um, I think this jives quite well with a um, a pull request I've seen being worked on uh, at Dato to do a special kind of ZFS send to recover one corrupted file uh, from a snapshot without having to resend the entire snapshot.
0: Oh, yeah, just Uh, that area.
1: Yeah, so basically, if, say, this simulation were to happen to you, uh, they might actually uh, be able to correct it by setting only those missing blocks.
0: Oh, yes. I think I remember there's also a geom class now to simulate these uh, drive errors in FreeBSD head somewhere. I think Uh, they um,
1: they did something. uh, You can do some stuff like that with GNOP and others, yeah. Mm. But anyway, uh, it's a good explanation of how to actually go from uh, the data you get out of ZDB uh, to where the data actually lives on disk. Yeah, the debugger shows you that, Mm -hmm. among other things. But also, it's describing the difference between the DVAs and uh, where it ends up on disk. Um, It can get more complicated if you're not using a mirror. If you actually use RAID Z, the DVA is... Relative to the virtual disk that is all of the sectors columnized in, in uh, Raid Z, so it can be a bit more complicated. But, oh, well, okay, I'm oh well, pretty sure that's why they used a mirror in their example,
0: it's <laughs> <laughs> easier to demonstrate, <laughs>
1: yeah. But, um, you know, it comes down to as a backup company, at some point, it makes more sense to just have a second separate backup rather than adding more redundancy to the first backup, right? Like if they are using mirrors everywhere currently for their backups, they could add a third disk uh, to each of those mirror VDEVs. And that way, if two drives did get corrupted, the third drive would still be okay, and they'd be able to recover the sector, and they wouldn't have to go to their secondary backup. Mm. But at some point, um, that storage is more expensive. Or you know, in particular, in their case of... It's an appliance on site with the customer that's also backing up to the remote site. Um, the remote site might be cheaper to have more hardware at. You know, there's at some point you can be limited to how much space you have on site uh, for more hard drives. Yeah, you know, if you've seen pictures of my basement, there's not much room for very many more hard drives. <laughs> mm-hmm. And storage uh, needs keep rising. <laughs> yeah, and so at some point, uh, it can make more sense to have a whole second copy on a Cypher machine rather than increasing the level of redundancy on a single machine. Yeah. So because don't you, trust at everything. At some point, you also have to deal with, um, you know, what if the CPU burns out or something or the motherboard fails uh, on this machine? So our yeah. backup is now offline. Hopefully, we have a second backup somewhere. Um, because when you need to restore stuff, you usually need to restore it yesterday, not uh, when we get around to fixing the backup machine. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Quickly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as the uh, disk drive keep rising, don't just uh, put everything in one pool, leave a backup separate uh, in case things fail. All right, so next story that we have is a NetBSD assembly programming tutorial that we found. Um, and uh, it's a Spark 64 version is also being prepared right at the beginning of the tutorial and will be added here when done. Uh, so, um, this basically, this blog post provides how to write a simple Hello World program in pure assembly on NetBSD slash AMD64. And they will not use or link against libc nor use GCC to compile it because, for the fun of it, uh, it will be using GNU AS or GAS and therefore the ATT syntax instead of Intel. So, the first question uh, right up front is why assembly? Answer is why not? Because it's fun to program in assembly directly. Contrary to a popular belief, assembly programs aren't always faster than what optimizing compilers produce. Nevertheless, it's good to be able to read assembly, especially when debugging C programs. Then they have a section on NetBSD syscalls here. In order for a program to do anything, it needs to communicate with the kernel. This is done by the syscall interface. NetBSD syscall numbers are specified in syscall.h. A lot of sys in there. Uh, syscall numbers are defined by macros, and the comments describe the return value and parameters. For example, the very simple close syscall uh, returns an integer and takes an integer argument. Uh, and it gets yeah, so defined. It
1: which file descriptor to close, and it returns whether it did it or not. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: That's the, the explanation here. And uh, syscalls take the arguments in the same way as functions do. And NetBSD AMD64 syscall arguments are passed in the registers in this order. So they have uh, RDI, RSI, RDX, then register 10, register 8, and register 9. And uh, who came up with that order? (laughs) It's, yeah, maybe it's the architecture somehow. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, That is listed in a comment in syscalls.c. Uh, file. The syscall number is passed in RAX, uh, register AX, I guess. It wouldn't find there what is defined. Yeah. Syscall return values are in EAX. So, for example, if you were to write out hello world, and we will write a program like this in a moment, uh, you would use the write syscall to ask the kernel to write these bytes to the standard output. So you can see it. DOS services worked in a similar way to syscalls. So, NetBSD ELF uh, secret source. Uh, The ELF headers that NetBSD has, um, they have a special section identifying them as that. If you try to run an ELF that does not have this section, it will fail with exec format error. Um, So you need that section so that the system can interpret what kind of format this is. Uh, So
1: with uh, the ELF type, uh, every binary has got a little header that tells you what kind it is. On FreeBSD, this can be used as part of the image activator stuff, for example so that if you have a binary that's for FreeBSD ARM rather than AMD64, uh, it knows to actually run the binary through QMU to be able to translate it so that you can run it on your computer uh, for cross-compiling and stuff like that. Uh, Or, or, for example, when you're using the Linux compatibility layer on FreeBSD, uh, it knows to apply the changes based on the fact that it sees um, the binary says Linux on it. Mm. Yeah, so that
0: identifies... uh... What this program does or where it's belonging to.
1: Uh, Uh, Well, it's the same reason, like when you run um, file on the file command against a a FreeBSD executable, it can tell you what version of FreeBSD it was compiled for. Oh, yeah. So Um, you can. That's also the type of information that's stored there. Yeah.
0: Then they create a a small make file for it to just compile it. And then they talk a bit about uh, the Int3 program. Uh, Intel engineers designed a one-byte opcode 0xcc that invokes interrupt 3, the debug interrupt. Uh, we can use that to see if the makefile works and our file executes. And they have a little assembly section for that as well. Uh, let's see. Ah, uh, This file has a little .text section where the code resides, the magic ident section to tell the kernel that this is a NetBSD executable, the file program that Alan mentioned, And uh, this underscore start symbol that marks where the executable code starts. That's kind of an important thing to know, right? There's no main function here. It needs to have that start section. Um, Save that as uh, proc.s and assemble that with the make to run the make file. And then when you run it, then you get trace slash bpt trap core dumped. Oops. Well, this means that the preprocessor or the, the processor actually successfully executed your program. And if you run in in GDB, the GNU debugger, or any other debugger, I guess, uh, and run it, you can see that it's starting that program and it's received that signal sick trap, and that causes the breakpoints to happen or the uh, the core dump. Cool. And then they go into a little bit more into calling syscalls, the ones that are ex, uh, existing already in the system, and there are a number of them. <laughs> Um, so the simplest syscall you can call is the exit syscall. It will cause your program to exit with the exit code specified as an argument. And they add that as well. And so uh, there's a couple more sections about that. And eventually you have a full-fledged Hello World program.
1: Yeah, and then I see it through actually printing the Hello World program out.
0: Oh, yeah. So it's, uh, it's a Quine, a program that prints its own source code, maybe.
1: No, it doesn't print its own source code. It just... Just the Hello World. Hello World. <laughs> mm. Okay.
0: <laughs> Fine. Yeah, that's a good start into the world of syscalls and assembly programming in general on NetBSD. All right. Time for the news roundup this week. We found an interesting thing uh, where we... Usually don't look for IT-specific stuff. Uh, the IKEA Lack Rack for servers.
1: Yes, uh, I've heard of this one quite a few times and actually know a few people that have them. Actually, my sysadmin has one in his living room at the moment. Uh, and I think Dan Lynn Gill had one up until he got a real rack. Uh, <laughs> so it turns out that IKEA makes this table. You know, As most people know, IKEA has funny Swedish-sounding names for all of their stuff yeah uh, there's a very nice little side table for your couch called Dave uh, <laughs> or you know they have all kinds of weird things but they have this uh, little mini end table thing called lack uh, which is yet yeah, I guess it's a side table technically but it just happens to have exactly the right dimensions uh, to fit rack mountable type gear in it and <laughs> then be able to screw the the rack mount stuff into the legs Uh and end up with rack-mounted gear. (laughs) That makes it interesting for the nerds of us. Yes. Um, (laughs) And so in this one example here that we got linked, they have just an Ethernet switch stuck in their little table. Um, But uh, I know Andrew has Rails installed correctly uh, all the way through the rack uh, and actually has whole servers mounted in it properly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, you probably really want to be able to uh have something with rails that can screw into both or all four legs rather than only the front because teetering, le- uh, levering off the front. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you can uh, fit quite a bit of stuff in it. Or, you know, here's one example they <laughs> have a lac rack that is so full of switches, it's actually not touching the ground anymore. <laughs> uh, or someone's got, what's this? One, two, three, five lac racks put together. Uh, yeah stacking up so they have a a lac rack on the floor and then on top of it another lac rack with all the gear in it so that uh to avoid the problem of the gear hanging off it's all resting on a bottom table while screwed (laughs) into the top table for stability and stacked from heaviest to lightest so that nothing is uh getting bent
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh they have also a pricing chart for various countries. So this is not too expensive. I mean, a, a whole rack would be more expensive, but yeah, it has other properties that make it interesting.
1: So can this little... possibly be right? The table only costs ten dollars. Yeah,
0: it seems like in German it's five ninety nine or a euro. It, it, it maybe
1: it's. Um... It seems like a lot of table to get for five dollar for five euros.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe they they sell it cheap because they want to.
1: Well, it is a relatively simple end table. I'm just... uh, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, not sure about the production is. I assume they'd be a little more expensive (laughs) than that. So, uh, wow, there you go. (laughs) Problem solved. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very... Well, yeah, Yeah, so... so Here's an example where somebody's got uh, their Switch purposely mounted with the ears on the back of the legs so that the uh, initial bend of the cables and so on, it doesn't stick out at the table and it's protected by the overhang of the table.
0: Ah, that also is a good idea. Yep. So, Lots yeah. Lots of
1: different ideas here.
0: <laughs> so on your next IKEA visit, um, have a look for those. Maybe it will fit in your data center somewhere. <laughs>
1: yes, and they even have this, uh, when temporarily not in use, multiple LAC racks can be stacked in a space-efficient manner, <laughs> unlike real rack servers.
0: Yeah, that's a bit more space-hungry. <laughs> but, yeah, the idea is definitely good to uh, to use or abuse the original table. <laughs> yeah, that's quite amusing. Yeah, so check out the website for more pictures. And uh, maybe you have some other ideas for this kind of uh, hardware. <laughs> Very nice. Okay, uh, but we also have OmniOS Community Edition uh, R151030LTS. Uh, so this has been published already at uh, in May uh, tw- of 2019. But uh, we thought this, uh, we haven't mentioned it, I guess. So we kind of do this now. So the OmniOS community is, uh, or the uh, Community Edition Association, more like, is proud to announce the general availability of OmniOS, uh, R151030. And this is published according to a six-month release cycle. Ah, wait, then they also have one coming up soon, if that's the cycle, six months. And if this has been published in May, okay. We'll look for uh, for future announcements. So that LTS version takes over from uh, R fifteen ten twenty eight, published in November twenty eighteen, and it since is an LTS release. It also takes over from R fifteen ten twenty two. Uh, this release will be supported for three years, and is the first LTS release published by the OmniOS CE Association since taking over the reins from Omni TI in 2017. Uh, the next LTS release is scheduled for May 2021. Ah, here we go. And the old stable 151026 release is now end of life. And they have a release schedule for further details. Uh, they min- mentioned that this is only a small selection of the new features, and bug fixes in the new release. Uh, they are listed on their website, of course. So system features, they have support for the SMB 2.1 client protocol has been added. Uh, The console now has full frame buffer support with variable resolution, more colors and Unicode fonts. So this is uh, also visible
1: in the bootloader. Uh, The the SMB client is something we'd really like to have in FreeBSD. Yeah, I guess uh, people... uh, have wanted that for a while now. Um, well, um, the SMB1 client we had was fine up until recently when everybody disabled support for the old version. Yeah, security and
0: all. Uh, so they also have several 32-bit-only 32, 32 packages that have been moved to 64-bit only. Yeah, go with the times. Uh, OmniOS Userland is now built with GCC version 8. And the default installation now includes NTPsec in place of NTP. The package can still be removed if not required. And they have a couple of uh, system default parameters set. Uh, They're now installed in slash etc slash system.d underscore OmniOS uh, colon system colon defaults and can be overwritten if necessary by creating additional local files under that etc system.d directory. Uh, they have also updates for commands and command options, zones. Uh, oh, ZFS as well. Support for importing pools using a temporary name and support for variable size D nodes. Okay, very nice. Uh, they have hardware support uh, section supporting for modern uh, AMD and Intel systems. New para-virtualization drivers for running OmniOS under Microsoft Hyper-V and Azure in a beta version. And these are delivered by new driver Hyper-V uh, PV packages. Uh, new BNX, Broadcom Net Extreme Network driver and improved support for USB 3.1. All right, very nice. So we uh, have now <laughs> mentioned that even though the uh, the release has happened in May already, uh sorry about that but yeah here you know it now
1: um so next we have a post by uh vermiden talking about um listing block devices on freebsd in the style of the lsblk command from linux uh so he goes on when i work on a linux system i usually miss many of the nice freebsd tools like sockstat gstat uh tops io mode um Top's ability to sort by columns from the command line, USB config, RC order, uh, BE ADM and BECTL, uh, the idle and real time priority commands, and so on and so on. But sometimes, which rarely happens, is a Linux having a very useful tool that's not available on FreeBSD. An example of this is LSBLK, which does one thing and does it well it lists all the block devices and their contents it has some problems like listing a disk uh, that is entirely under a ZFS pool on which LSBLK displays two partitions instead of information about what ZFS is doing and so on. Uh, But if you look at SLBLK or LSBLK on Linux, you'll see it says, oh, you have this disk uh, and it's this this big and it's of this type and it's mounted over here, Mm -hmm. but also as a tree. So if you have, for example, SDA, your main hard drive, and you can see it's about a terabyte, uh, but it has a 500 megabyte boot partition and then its main partition, uh, which in this case is actually uh, LVM, which is their logical volume manager, uh, and they split up into three different uh, sub-partitions, basically. Or you can see that you have um, SDC and SDD, two other hard drives uh, that are partitioned, but then are put together with MD RAID to make a RAID 10, uh on the slash data partition so those two disks are basically mirrored like you would do with gmir um so when you want that information it can be a little harder to come by in freebsd especially because some of the tools are subsystem specific for example uh freebsd offers the cam control utility which if you do cam control dev list will give you a list of all the disks that are attached uh except for it's not always quite all of them um NVMe devices usually show up under NVMe control dev list rather than cam control dev list, depending on your mode. Um, certain RAID controllers don't display the disks properly, uh, and you have to go get the list from somewhere else for those. Uh, and it's not the most parsable format ever uh, from cam control dev list. And then you have the geom commands, uh, like uh, geom disk list which is helpful and very verbose, but not really machine-readable at all. Uh, Or gpart, which is what I often use. But if a disk isn't partitioned at all, it won't show up in the list because it has no partitions. Uh, Like if it doesn't have even a partition scheme laid down, like MBR or GPT, um, meaning that the disk could not show up when it actually maybe needs to. (laughs) Mm. And I have some example outputs of all three of those here. And they say, uh, these provide the needed information in an acceptable manner, but only on systems with a small number of disks. If you would like to display a summary of all system uh, drive contents, uh, he has written this lsblk.sh, um, which allows uh, some interesting features like dash uh, dash SCSI or dash dash inverse modes. i focused uh, on providing only the basic features, uh, to list the system block devices and their contents, as I have long uh, and pleasing experience with writing shell scripts like BEADM and AutoMount. I thought that writing LSBLK might be a good idea. Uh, and So when it started out, it was only 400 lines of code, and it was a pretty straightforward use of a combination of these tools that he's talked about. And he has some example output, uh, which was somewhat useful. Um I'm not sure that the major and minor numbers are that useful, but I guess having the same format as the Linux tool means that scripts that try to parse the output uh, might have a better time. Um, Yep. And then he shows a more complicated example where he's actually showing the partition labels and whether they're mounted or not, or if they're used by ZFS. Um, And then he added some more help and usage stuff. uh, And then he rewrote 75% of the program. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, first versions and all. (laughs) And started uh, bundling in information from glabel. um, And then dealing with uh, Fuse file systems as well. Um, And then, oh, what if you have Geli encrypted disks? Uh, And, you know, Fuse and all this other stuff. (laughs) And so you end up uh, now near the bottom where you have all kinds of data now. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and to have examples of FreeBSD, MTFS, and FAT32 formatted disks, uh mixes of, you know, mixing in Fuse and ZFS and other file systems and all of that to get as much information as possible printed on the screen here. Um The kind of thing like this that I've wanted sometimes was more about where the disk is in my system. So if you run... I think it's a cam control dev list with dash V. You get a very human readable only output, um, that can tell you a bit more information, which then combined with, uh, some sysctl stuff from the hardware tree, you can figure out, oh, um, this disc is on HCI channel three, which is connected to this specific SATA controller, uh, and basically eventually work backwards and figure out, uh, which SATA port a disk might actually be plugged into. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, And, yeah, I'd like to look at expanding a tool like that. Uh, Well, LSBLK is useful, and I want to... Yeah, you get disks and their partitions and so on. I actually want to go the opposite direction. It's like, here's my list of disks, but here's how they're actually connected to the system, going through the AHCI channels that they're in and up to the controller that they're, they're connected to or especially for JBOD-type things, uh, oh, it's on this one of your LSI controllers and in this shelf, uh, and get as much of that kind of information as possible and try to output stuff in a machine-usable format when I want to do stuff like, oh, I want to make my new Z pool, and I want to use, for each VDEV, I want to use uh, a, two disks from each different shelf so that... Um, In my RAID Z2, um, if one shelf goes offline, that only takes out two disks from the same VDEV, and uh, it doesn't fault the pool.
0: Yeah, you want that redundancy over the shelves.
1: Yeah, uh, and stuff like that. But it can be awfully hard to figure out what disks are where. Um, Like the SESUtil map utility helps a bit, but uh, it would just need to be a bunch of extra code to figure out what's where. Yeah.
0: Uh, to make uh, let's blink and which drive to pull.
1: Uh, there's that stuff too, but in this case, it's uh, just yeah, figuring out which drives are where so that I can decide how to lay out my ZFS pool. Mm.
0: Oh, I see in the comments section that people are already asking for a port and uh, Vermiden is on that. He's working on it. And so we can maybe in the future find this in the ports collection. He has a GitHub uh, project for that, of course. If people want to contribute code or um, send pull requests. That would be a nice. Yes, thing. Yeah.
1: At this point, he's he's basically rewrote it uh, five times. <laughs> so give him another couple of days to finish rewriting it a sixth time, and then we'll get the port. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's dedication, certainly.
0: All right, very nice. So, thanks for that. And uh, oh, we have some updates from Project Trident, nineteen point ten. So this is now available. Uh, this is a general package update to the current release repository based upon True as nineteen point ten. Uh, they have
1: some package changes. Uh, they have 601... Yeah, so yes, this is uh, basically the automated snapshot. Um, so mm-hmm. if you look at the one we covered like last week, that was the stable 12 branch. This is the head 19, uh, uh, current branch.
0: The, yeah, the latest and greatest so far. Uh, so they have 601 new packages. They have 165 deleted packages and 3,341 updated packages.
1: So chances uh, are... I think that's mostly... Uh, because the default version of Ruby changed to 2.6. Oh, yes, that covers a lot of
0: uh, other ports. Uh, you throw a stone. Oh, lots of Ruby gems had to be updated. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, So that's a big refresh for packages, yeah. This uh, version of Project Trident. Um, but definitely get it. So you have the 19.10 and can help test out a little bit or uh, use it as your main driver, maybe very nice so time for the Beastie bits this week it's uh a netbsd building tools we found a picture about that um what's this showing this is uh is this a boot no, wait why ah so oh this is an this is booting on an apple or at least from an apple uh, connected keyboard um and what's it showing on the right the yeah. right is a kind of a compile run?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Is there some cross-compiling maybe from an Apple? I don't think so. Mm. I'm not sure why TG (laughs) TG
0: put this in the... There's no description here. Okay, well, we'll leave it to the uh, imagination.
1: Um, I guess you're (laughs) right. It must be on an Apple because it has a FaceTime camera.
0: Yeah, not many other devices have that. So I guess they can now cross-compile
1: well it's not a cross-compile it's running netbsd 9 natively on some apple device
0: Uh, okay well because netbsd runs pretty much every everywhere and (laughs) all the architectures you might imagine okay well good to know there's no no further description here so we have to guess what uh what more Uh, The next one is a bit more descriptive um, because sponsorships have opened for SNMP Mastery. Yes, this is Michael W. Lucas uh, writing uh, yet another book. So he writes, uh, my next tech book will be SNMP Mastery. Much like Pam Mastery, I'm writing this book as a public service. SNMP is an uncomfortable fact of life. It's Baroque, obtuse, and misunderstood. Now that I've shipped the pseudo-mastery sponsor gifts, I'm opening print and ebook sponsorships, and there are links for both of those in his uh, blog post. Uh, he's opened those for SNMP Mastery. The voices in his head tell him that he needs to write this with Lovecraftian cosmic horror reference. Yes, please. Uh, because SNMP. Who knows if that'll actually work in the manuscript, however. So we'll stay tuned for that. <laughs> when have asked a bit about it,
1: uh, apparently the Jails book is not selling very well. And I'm wondering why that is why it's a great book. Go out and buy a copy of the jails book because uh, no matter how much you think you know about jails, uh, there's something you don't know in that book uh, yeah it will make your life better
0: It's definitely a good book to have, even if you're not currently working with jails much. it's good to have if you do
1: because so just, um, by knowing in the back of your head what you could do with jails means that next time you're having a problem it will dawn on you that, oh, I see how I could solve this.
0: Yeah. Encapsulate all your uh, system services or your projects or your services that you have in little
1: jails, and then you will well, be... yes, like, I have a bunch awesome. going on here in the system. Like, uh, I needed a GitLab set up, so definitely that's in a jail. Uh, you know, it and it's 800 dependencies and so on. Um uh, but it's like, oh, I need to set up a VPN. I don't really want the VPN to take over my host system, or even in particular, I don't want this VPN to be able to access my home network, even though it's running on my home NAS. Uh, mm. So I put that in a V image jail, so it has its own separate network stack and it has different IP addresses, and it's in its own VLAN, and uh, it works great even from inside a jail. Uh, which you know, in the past, the VPN and stuff were one of the few things you couldn't do in a jail, but now you can. Yeah. Uh, it's all there in the book. Uh, and so, yes, I have a bunch of different jails. I have some jails that don't have any networking or some jails that don't have any restrictions.
0: Yeah, you can uh, fine tune this jail, uh, what it can do or can't do. Because, uh, yes, for example,
1: you can make a jail that is a ch root of slash and doesn't have restrictions on what device entries you can access. And so then it just becomes a process group, kind of. Uh, it's just this kind of container thing, but it's not separate from your whole system.
0: Yeah. Or you can limit it to use only one CPU or just 500k of memory or cool things like that. So you can really mess with people if you just give them access to the jail this way. But yeah, we digress. Um, definitely check out Michael W. Lucas's books. And uh, if you have a little money left, then why don't you sponsor his SNMP Mastery book that's coming soon? Soon, or is currently working on. Okay, um, then we have some news from Package Source because it's 2019 quarter three. This release announcement is out uh, for the new Package Source version, or the, the quarterly release. I would say um, they are proud to uh, announce the 64th quarterly release of Package Source, the cross-platform packaging system. Package Source is available with more than 20,000 packages running on 23 separate platforms. And you can find more information, of course, on PackageSource.org. So, in summary, uh, 301 packages were added, many new games, emulators, audio tools. I guess I lost a lot of people after mentioning games. uh, R and Ruby packages. 114 packages were removed and 1,682 package updates were made to 1,280 unique packages. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, part of the TechLife packages were updated for the 2019 release as well. Okay, and I have
1: new versions of Blender, Emacs, Firefox, Go, LibreOffice, uh, Mate, Mesa, Mono, Mumble, uh, MySQL, Nextcloud, PHP, Postgres, Python, Ruby, Rust, SQLite, VLC, WeChat, etc. And notable uh, yeah. removals are getting rid of Postgres 8 and 9.1, 2, and 3, but you can still have Postgres 9.4, 9.5, 9.6, 10, and 11.
0: Yep, these are fairly recent still. Um, so yeah, check out the new package source, quarterly drop or release. Um, well, what's next here? Ah, uh, no, it's not prefetch, it's pf... Is it? Pfetch pfetch, not fetch, pfetch something, pfetch a simple system information tool written in POSIX sh, which is why it's having the p in front. Um, you, it is what it's doing what you think. It's showing you um, a simple system information tool written entirely in POSIX shell using features built into the language itself where possible. And the source code is highly documented. And I and they hope uh, here that it will act as a learning resource for POSIX SH and simple information detection across various different operating systems. If you remember a previous episode we did, uh, there was the pure SH uh, Bible, which was right. well-received. So
1: the same person has now made a tool. What was that? I think it was NeoFetch was the one we looked at before that had all the colors and stuff, but mm-hmm. was not very good at detecting BSD and kept saying like, insane amounts of RAM and so on Uh, whereas this tool is written in uh, pure POSIX SH so it'll work on all the operating systems
0: oh yes they have a a OS support section Uh, they support all the Linuxes under the sun Uh, Android the BSDs in particular Dragonfly FreeBSD NetBSD and OpenBSD Uh, Windows as well, because now they have a subsystem for Linux as well. Haiku, macOS, Minix, and Solaris. So this tool should be fairly portable, which is why POSIX exists in the first place. Um, You can see a bit of source code and configuration for it, so you can tune it a little bit to your liking. And yeah, this is a nice way of showing you maybe in a a corner of your screen, or if you're in in the market for a new laptop, maybe you want to uh, go to a store and check out what kind of uh, support it has. Maybe you run this and see what it
1: detects. Um, they also link to a separate tool they have called uFetch that is just ASCII art logos for all the operating systems.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, there's a use for that as well. Yeah. Message of the days and stuff. <laughs> I can see the <laughs> <a> use case. <laughs> cool, yeah, so yeah. yet another... Pure shell implementation, and you can see that this is a fairly, well, straightforward language, yeah, and fairly portable if you run it in bin.sh, not in bin bash or some other shells that people take for granted nowadays. All right, um, we stay a little bit with NetBSD. Uh, We're taking NetBSD kernel bug rows to the next level. Kernel fuzzers uh, from quick 80 2019 overview.
1: Yeah, from uh, Camille Ritarowski. Uh I love the art at the beginning of this. It's uh, a rabbit with two <laughs> spray cans labeled sanitizer chasing down some bugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. So this is from uh, one of the talks at uh, EuroBSDCon in Lillehammer, Norway, uh, a couple of weeks back, uh, as presented by... Uh, Camille? No. by uh, Grouchowski? Grochowski. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I'm butchering that Polish name. <laughs> Probably,
0: but the presentation is well worth looking at.
1: Yep, and the video for that should be up uh, in not too long, but you have the slides now if you want them. mm And... It basically talks about using the uh, different sanitizers, like the Undefined Behavior Sanitizer, the Address Sanitizer, the Kernel Memory Leak Finder, the Memory Sanitizer, the forget what TSAN does. Um... <laughs> I forget.
0: Insert crickets here.
1: We um, <laughs> will also talk about uh, SysColor, Triforce ACL, other tools, uh, and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a good overview of what uh, is out there and how you can use yes. that too.
1: Lots recover. of fuzzing work going on.
0: Yeah, but we also saved the best for last, in my opinion. Because people have been attempting or have been successful at cracking Ken Thompson's password.
1: Yeah, so uh, here's a post from Lee New Kerwichen. Um, <clears throat> so somewhere back around 2014, I found uh, some dumps of the BSD3 source code that happened to include the ETC password file before. Uh, passwords were stored in the master.password file or shadow file on Linux. Um, so it had everybody's crypted passwords, uh, including old-timers like Dennis Ritchie, Ken Thompson, Brian Kernighan, uh, Steve Bourne, and Bill Joy. Since back then, they used the DES-based uh, crypt algorithm. Uh, the hashes were relatively weak, uh, since you were limited to eight characters of input. If you if your password was more than eight characters, it only looked at the eight, first eight characters, meaning you get... Any characters after the first date wrong, and it would still log you in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So they thought it would be easy uh, to just crack those passwords using popular tools like uh, John or Hashcat. Uh, Quickly, I cracked a fair deal of these passwords. Many of them were very weak, um, just lowercase words or whatever. Although uh, Brian Kernigan's password was slash dot comma slash dot comma. Which is uh, easy to type on a, a QWERTY keyboard uh, and is special characters. So, maybe not something most brute forcers or guessers would have gotten, uh, but that's interesting. <laughs> However, Ken, uh, Ken's password eluded uh, my cracking endeavors. Even an exhaustive search over all lowercase letter and digit uh, combinations, uh, which took several days back in 2014, uh, yielded no results. Since the algorithm was developed by Ken Thompson and Robert Morris, I wondered uh, what's up there. I also realized that compared to other password hashing schemes like NTLM, uh, Crypt turns out to be uh, quite a bit slower to crack and perhaps also less optimized. Uh, so did he really use uh, uppercase letters or even special characters? Uh, back then, an exhaustive 7-bit uh password brute force search uh, would have taken over two years on a modern machine but recently the topic came up uh at the unix heritage society's mailing list and uh this person shared their results and frustration in not being able to crack Ken's password uh finally uh nigel williams uh came up with the answer uh so they show the hash which was uh You know, it's just, it's like 10 characters of uppercaseness or whatever. Crypt was pretty basic. It Mm. turns out that uh, Ken's password was p slash q2 dash q4 exclamation mark. It took about four and a bit days on uh, an AMD Radeon Vega 64 running Hashcat at about 930 million hashes per second uh, during that time. Uh, those familiar know that the hash rate fluctuates and slows down toward the end as you get the more silly passwords and so on. Uh, As it turns out, uh, this is a chess move uh, in the the chess descriptive notation and the beginning of many common openings in chess. Uh, This fits very well with Ken Thompson's background in computer chess. So I'm very happy that this mystery has been solved now, and I'm pleased to finally have the answer.
0: (laughs) See? This is interesting. I mean, you shouldn't crack people's passwords, but I guess from this perspective. Well,
1: yeah, BSD three would be from the eighties,
0: <laughs> yeah. from way back when. Yeah, I think so be late
1: eighties. I don't remember exactly. Uh,
0: Hope they long before I passwords. knew what a computer was. <laughs> yeah, and I um, guess those are probably now in everyone's password checker, <laughs> just in case people.
1: Get yes, well, yes. The, the real <laughs> tip is don't use only DES for passwords because you know. You can exhaust that space in a couple of days now, yeah, <laughs> what would have taken two years before it doesn't anymore, and uh you know the person who spent four days on it uh only used one video card by the sounds of it, versus you know a determined attacker could you know go on Amazon and rent a hundred video cards for a couple of days. <laughs> Yeah, that sure. Definitely wasn't a thing you could do back then. No, not <laughs> so not. You could write that, a virus to take over lots of people's computers, but you couldn't just go and rent uh, for a few thousand dollars uh, as many computers as you happen to need.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting not just to reveal the password, what also uh, passwords, but also what the passwords reveal about the people using those. So yeah, we thought this would be. Uh,
1: interesting for people to see yeah it came up on irc and i was just like "Ooh, i'm grabbing that story
0: (laughs) time for feedback and questions this week uh people have been sending us questions but we could always use more So if you have any question about the show, anything that you want us to mention, or that you have found a nice article about Unix that we missed, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and it's probably then ending or has a good chance of ending up in a future episode. Uh, The first one that we have here is Evil Ham with a couple questions. So Evil Ham writes, "Um, hello, Alan and Benedict, an interesting capitalization, and everyone else who makes this happen, this show, yeah, all the people behind the scenes. Uh, you asked for feedback and questions so feedback and questions you shall have okay thank you for your show first i uh, specifically enjoy how you both sound like super understanding well-meaning people keep that up yeah we kind of fool people this way right um <laughs> sometimes I'm not a nice person <laughs> <laughs> there, there's that yeah um no no uh, it's it's definitely appreciated thank you for that feedback um so further it goes about 15 years ago i was talked into trying Linux, and it became my main OS for some time, and it never stopped using it uh, on servers. Okay, so about two years ago, I was using Windows as my day-to-day operating system work stuff, but found myself doing more and more work on a Linux VM to control servers and stuff. It was then that I met a wonderful BSD mensch. So it's been nearly two years of being pestered with how BSDs are awesome, PF is awesome, ZFS is awesome. FreeBSD integrates super nicely with ZFS. Jails and base ports are, su- are a wonderful thing. <laughs> At the beginning of this year, I had to set up a new NAS uh, for work and had this BSD mesh around. So I used them to bootstrap me into using FreeBSD in two days. Excellent. That's kind of a nice bootcamp of sorts. Um, Fast forward eight months and I run the Windows-y things uh, on IPv6-only VMs on Beehive have helped create two ports I was missing. The Elm format and uh, Language Elm. It's okay. Great. Uh, With the wonderful help of Arrow D and BSD Mensch, I write this from my FreeBSD13 current laptop that is building Firefox and Poudreire. And when I SSH into my Linux servers, I suffer from Control-T syndrome. Yep. Or not being there and when you need it, yeah, probably sick info and for and SUK and syndrome, yeah, exactly in German, yeah. I also successfully set up an OpenBSD router using just the base system. Well, very cool. Uh, so he has a longish introduction into all the uh, specific parts. Uh, where are the questions? So question the, number one, ah, uh, that NAS was started. Everything required encryption at rest on the whole OS, but it required remote decryption of the system. Uh, threat being someone breaking in and stealing device, not someone physically fiddling with things and patiently waiting. Uh, having the Linux mentality, it was a bit mind boggling to realize that there is no equivalent to in a DRAMFS where to run like a drop bear instance, for example, to remotely unlock the disk and move on with the boot. Instead, we figured out that we should install a base system on an unencrypted Z pool, unlock, and then run uh, the kernel, mount root from, set the mount root prompt basically and
1: reboot-r
0: into the fully encrypted system. Kind of elegant and straightforward. Actually, a beauty of the base port separation.
1: Yeah, um, I'd like to make that a little easier
0: for people too. Unfortunately, setting this up was not as straightforward as we had liked, since the installer can throw you into a shell and let you do it yourself. BSD installed ZFS boot is pretty much an all-or-nothing script.
1: Yes, Uh, uh, that is a downside of it. Um, I kind of realized that when I had to write up the wiki instructions as I did it on my laptop of, oh, I bought this laptop. It has Windows on it. I might need that every once in a while. So I'm going to shrink that Windows partition and have this free space and I'd like to install FreeBSD into it. And the installer's only option is overwrite the whole hard drive of FreeBSD. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's that. Okay, sure. Uh, what I would have liked would have been something like ZFS boot setup pool script uh, step that takes a disk or geli encrypted partition and uses the nice defaults on it and does only that. I'm a bit unsure if extracting this step would be interesting at all for the project and not really sure how to go about that implicit question.
1: Yeah, there might be some value in splitting ZFS boot into two or three separate parts, like uh, laying down the partitions um, and such, and then the one that actually sets up the the pool. Um, So three parts. Partitioning the disks, setting up the pool, and then creating the file systems. Because sometimes you'd like to uh, be able to say, hey, here's a list of disks and this layout. Please make the pool for me. Uh, Or I already have a pool now that I've created manually with my fancy setup. Uh, Now please put a normal FreeBSD install on top of it. Uh, And then optionally maybe uh, have that be extended to have an option of make me uh, this unencrypted pre-boot environment that will just reroute me into... Uh, The newer system. The other current problem with the reroute concept is that the kernel, you you don't reload the kernel when you reroute, and so you have to make sure to keep the kernel that's in that uh, pre-boot environment in sync with the kernel that you would normally be trying to run. Uh, And so it can hinder things with boot environments a little bit. Oh, yes, yeah. that's That needs to Considered. Something where we maybe could figure out how to get around. Mm.
0: So he's a bit unsure if extracting this step would be interesting at all for the project. Yeah, that we mentioned. Uh he knows that it or yeah, he knows that it's mostly a matter of changing stuff in user bin BSD installed scripts, but don't really think that's worth the full developer's handbook effort at the moment. Well, reading that is always nice for good for other things. So uh also a bit unsure if this kind of setup is something perfectly obvious to BSD people or considered utterly useless and that's why the internet appears to not know about it well there and are a use couple cases of other
1: people who do it they usually just use something like mfsbsd uh for ease of use <clears throat> but uh it's definitely useful and something i know a number of people do uh and making it easier would be good yeah um hmm. so don't hold back
0: send us a review a yeah. patch
1: why not? Uh, I know that there's been some talk about, you know, BSD install 2.0. So definitely, um, I have some ideas written down somewhere. I built like a flow chart of what I thought the user facing steps to an install should be, uh, trying to basically, I think right now BSD install asks too many questions. Uh, mm. and you know, is just the point that it confuses the user to get them to give up instead of getting to the end of the install. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's a lot that could be done to improve things. Uh, and so we're definitely open to ideas and discussions on that. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so the second question is, uh, I've been defaulting to SNDIO and compiling my media ports with it. It seems to work much better for me. And I really wonder two things that the internet doesn't appear to know. Are there plans to having it be the default on FreeBSD? If there's, is that even doable?
1: I don't even know. I thought SNDIO was an open BSD thing. I didn't know that it was a thing on FreeBSD. I have no idea what the defaults might be. Um, that might be best. To, it's it's not really in the purview of the graphics working group, but they tend to be the people that know what's happening with desktopy stuff. It might be uh, something to ask Nicholas or or the other people in the the FreeBSD dash X eleven channel on uh, EFNet.
0: Yeah, that's a good start to ask. Uh, And yeah, we don't have much more on this question. Uh, The third question is, PF is indeed awesome, but on FreeBSD it's missing wonderful things like NAT64 and the syntax is by now not fully compatible with that in OpenBSD. Is there a story behind that? Well, other than one person working on it.
1: PF uh, was ported from OpenBSD to FreeBSD and then lots and lots of FreeBSD-specific work was done on it to improve performance and add features like the uh, VNet support so you can have multiple instances of PF so that each jail could have its own PF if you wanted and things like that. Um, and that means that its source code doesn't really resemble what's in OpenBSD anymore, and it's not as easy as just, oh, here's four new commits from OpenBSD that we can just pull in and apply to FreeBSD, and it'll just work. Um yeah, help it is definitely could be fixed. But it would cost money, and nobody has been offering up money for it. Uh, all the work on things like NAT sixty four were done in IPFW because it's a uh, higher performance, and is happens to be what the the people that you know spend money on firewalls tend to use.
0: Yeah. So definitely. Uh, Thanks to the current maintainer, Christoph, he's doing a lot of work, and, uh, but it's definitely too difficult for a single person to catch up with all the upstream changes.
1: Well, uh, in their spare time, anyway. Yeah, that, again, it's not if, a full-time
0: job here. Yes,
1: it, it could be done, but nobody has offered to pay for it. <laughs> mm, yeah, so that's the current situation.
0: And If you ha- yes. want to help out and work into that a little bit, definitely that's uh, a thing you can do. And uh, it seems like you're going on a good start. Uh, definitely say thanks to your BSD mention, all the people who brought you into this world of uh, <laughs> Unix. And yeah, thanks for your questions. And thanks also for uh, the two points that you now maintain. That's a good start after a couple months into the project. Very nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, the next is Rob uh, with an APU2 alternatives and GPT partition types question. Uh, sounds complicated, but it's short in the question itself. Alan and Benedict, Rob writes, thanks for your wonderful program, dudes. Sure. Um, first question, do you know of any tier one computer with good nics that's similar to the APU2, but uses new components like DDR4 memory? Is the APU2 still a good buy?
1: Um, I've not really investigated those type of computers much. I know that um, AMD has some new systems that they happen to also call APUs, uh, which are Low end of the new, like uh, they're not. I don't think they're really Ryzen, but they're based on Zen or something. I don't know. There's some low end AMD systems that are very modern and low power and have things like DDR4. That maybe be uh, able to fit what you're looking for. Uh, yeah, maybe the rest of the viewers know more because I do not uh, have any suggestions because the lowest end thing that I use in production is like an E3.
0: <laughs> mm. Yeah I also don't have much about that um so we yeah we definitely should give that out to the to the listeners maybe they have similar better setups uh or have bought one recently, so they know if it's still good or not. Uh, The second question is probably closer to what we can answer. Uh, What GPT partition type settings should I use with Gally when my GPT partition is consumed by Gally Guillaume uh, instead of being consumed by a file system directly? I feel like FreeBSD, FreeBSD FreeBSD-UFS, and FreeBSD-ZFS are all lies.
1: Kind of, but it turns out the bootloader stuff, the bootstrap stuff, uses that to tell what file system to try to read. Um, so if it's ZFS inside the Gelly, you probably want it to say FreeBSD-ZFS, so the bootloader actually tries to interpret it as ZFS. Um, I looked at adding a FreeBSD-Gelly type, but then um, the bootloader would have no way of knowing what's supposed to be inside of that. Because it's encrypted. Well, no, well, no, because if you set the type to geom, it's not going to know what type it is. Whereas if you set the type to zfs, it's like, oh, if I decrypt this, it will be zfs. Mm. Uh, oh yes,
0: yeah.
1: So yes, I understand um, the question and the niggling that it mm. that it provides, but um, <laughs> you probably don't want to solve that problem right now because it will cause a much bigger problem. <laughs> yeah. Just
0: grind your teeth and. Uh, be done with it <laughs> so for now, <laughs> unless you want to grind your teeth into that problem. Uh, but as Alan said, it's a bit more involved than just changing a label, okay? Uh, but thanks for those questions. And uh, last but not least, to this week is Tom with the FreeBSD. Ah, yes, a question about the journal article that Andrew Fengler recently wrote for the FreeBSD journal. Um, thanks for that at this point to Andrew. Uh, so Tom writes, Hey, Alan and Benedict, I'm here with another question on jails. I was reading the article advanced jail management with easy jail in the now free FreeBSD journal. And yeah, definitely check out the free journals. We it's free now. People haven't uh, noticed that. Yes. You can read all the journals now for free without paying money. Um, so back to the question he mentions, uh, since the router is not, uh, and this is quoted since the router is not, Doing NAT any jail with a private IP address will not be able to connect out. We can work around this by running our own NAT somewhere, but we probably do not want to NAT our entire server. We can change the FIB or routing table for the jail, unquote. So, however, he does not explain how you should actually perform the NAT between the two routing tables or the FIPS. The FreeBSD handbook also does not mention multiple routing tables, so I'm left to wonder how.
1: Right. Um, in general, the idea with multiple FIBS or routing tables is that the second or third routing table you have uses a different default gateway. So on the host system that's going directly out to the internet, it will use the route default route of your, your ISP, uh, which in this case uh, goes directly out to the internet and doesn't do any NAT. Uh, and so for all the public IPs on the host, this works best because we don't go through another machine. But the jails says using internal IP needs to use some other machine as its default gateway that will do the net. So in this particular case, we have, um, say, a bunch of different uh, virtual machines at a provider, say, like DigitalOcean. So if you have five different machines at DigitalOcean, on each of those machines, you're going to want the, um, the host, the VM itself, to be using the DigitalOcean router. That it's provided, But if you run a bunch of internal jails on top of those, you can set up just one of those machines to do NAT and have all of the different machines go over the internal network that DigitalOcean provides and get NATed out by that one. So basically, it's just having the jails have a different default gateway than the host. Hmm. Uh, so the article specifically doesn't cover setting up NAT uh, because it's generally meant to be, oh, it's just some other router on the network. Rather than something you meant to set up yourself,
0: hmm, yeah. Uh, but it's definitely a good uh, question about the, the because this is not an uncommon or too uncommon type of setup for jails,
1: right? Um, so the misconception the Tom seems to have is about he keeps mentioning doing that between the two routing tables, and it's it's not. Uh, each jail is either in that routing table or in the other routing table, um, hmm. and so. Basically, the jail has a routing table that just has a different default gateway than the the host. Uh, and then whatever default gateway you're pointing to is meant to do the NAT. Um, if you just want to do the NAT on the host on the way out, then you don't need to do something like this at all. Um, but in our scale engine setup, we had like 20 plus machines, and it didn't make sure. sense to set up NAT on all 20 machines versus have all 20 machines go use... Uh, a specific machine we had to do their NAT out of one IP address, um, while the rest of the host machines still talk directly to the ISP's router so that the uh, you know gigabits of traffic we're sending to the internet aren't having to go through our poor little NAT machine. Uh, yeah. So that, that machine doesn't become a single point of failure where all of our internet-facing traffic is really running off the redundant router of the ISP uh, so that there's no extra machines for us to manage or extra bottlenecks there and then just the jails that need NAT because they don't have real IP addresses are going out uh, via our little NAT machine
0: yeah that should uh, help answering that question or clean it up the article a little bit Uh, so yeah thanks for that question and that pretty much wraps up our episode for this week Uh, thank you for listening and again if you have any uh, show topics or content for us then send an email to feedback at bsdnow.tv